You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. For most people, John W. Davis is at best a footnote a speck of information in a textbook about presidential election history, the also-ran of Calvin Coolidge, 1924. You open up the historical electoral maps and you see John W. Davis with a bunch of states shaded in green and then Calvin Coolidge in yellow and LaFollin in orange or something like that. A 1978 article about hobby collecting a political item said that getting a John W. Davis is tough. But there is at least a little more to say about John W. Davis, and this podcast is where we say a few little things about people. There are some public figures, his daughter wrote, who, like some actors, look smaller off stage. With him, the opposite was true. The nearer one came to him, the larger he appeared. To King George V, he was the most perfect gentleman that the king ever met. To Oliver Wendell Holmes, who sat for 30 years as a justice in the Supreme Court. No advocate who ever argued before the Supreme Court was more elegant, more clear, more concise. If you know John W. Davis at all, you know about the 1924 Democratic Convention that met for a week, torn between two candidates, two visions for America, section strife on display, rural versus urban, Protestant versus Catholic, wet versus dry, and after dozens of ballots could not reach a consensus. All of it broadcasted on the radio. This is KDKA. Of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company. RCA was specifically selling radio sets with ads that promoted that listeners could cheer with the ballots at the upcoming political convention. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood making people laugh because it was going to be heard over a hundred times. Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood. It might have been one of the first drinking game-worthy broadcast events, with people sneaking in Prohibition-era shots every time the radio announcer said, Alabama cast its votes for Oscar Underwood. Clink. Well, it wasn't funny. The party was going into debt, and delegates were tired and frustrated. The candidates were tired. There were good moments, too. FDR's speech had the gallery screaming. The party rightly took it to the crooks who stole American oil and teapot dome in that scandal, yes. But the good parts became a distant memory with ballot after ballot in hot days. And delegates were racking up hotel bills, and though they couldn't do it at the concession stands, drinking an awful lot. Ballots continue. 
William Gibbs McAdoo, son-in-law of the President of the United States, and Alfred E. Smith, the governor of New York. They can't decide. At one point, somebody suggests John W. Davis, former solicitor general, country lawyer from West Virginia turned Wall Street lawyer. William Jennings Bryan, who had been his party's candidate several times, said what many liberals in the Democratic Party felt. This convention must not nominate a Wall Street man. It wasn't just a battle over who would represent Democrats in the election. It was about what Democrats represented. The state is headed by a governor who's a Catholic, Alfred E. Smith, and many there want to get something on the record, want the party to make a statement. And that statement would be a proposed platform plank condemning the secret organization, the Ku Klux Klan by its name. It's debated while crowds in the balcony, mostly supporting Catholic Smith and against the Klan, jeer at delegates who refuse to condemn the Klan. The other side say they're just supporting the First Amendment. That's what McAdoo says. He's not for the Klan, but he stands square in support of the First Amendment. One reporter from the Daily News at the time purportedly referred to the convention as a Klan bake. This has been misunderstood sometimes in future memes that have come out in the 21st century because it almost sounds like somebody's having a fun party for people in hooded robes, and that's not what's going on. This reporter meant to say that the Klan is being cooked in this room of Democrats. Um, they're being shouted at. They're making fun of delegates who are members and won't admit it. Smith's people have those galleries. His police are the police at the convention. But the delegates themselves have the votes, and they are torn. One of those people that was here is a man who's going to run for president as a Republican himself one day. He is Wendell Wilkie of Akron, Ohio, and he's a Democrat and against the Klan. The vote is contentious, and there's so much fighting. William Jennings Bryan, thrice the leader of the party and its candidate, gets up and tries to cool tempers. He suggests something. You can have this plank, just don't call the organization out by name. He shouted down. The plank fails by a narrow vote, may even be one vote. The convention also can't pick a candidate. Ballots and more ballots. McAdoo, the son-in-law of the last Democratic president. Smith was Catholic, anti-prohibition, pro-labor, pro-immigrant. The new face of an urban nation is exactly what McAdoo supporters fear. It's a mess. And John W. Davis is suggested again. William Jennings Bryan tells people, I have no personal objection of any kind to Mr. Davis. He is a man of high character. Something many would say about Davis. But he adds, so is Mr. Coolidge, and there's no difference between them. Davis was a lawyer, and his law firm worked for J.P. Morgan, among any many other clients. This was after he served as Solicitor General and as Ambassador to the Court of St. James, Ambassador to Great Britain under the Wilson administration. He always insisted that he wasn't a Wall Street trader, that he had clients, and he refused after his name was brought up in 1920. People told him, you know, give up these clients. And he, and he, in a speech that was pointed to by many lawyers at the time, defended the lawyer's right to take on clients, whether they agree with them or not, whether they represent people that may not be themselves. And he shouldn't have to give up his income to participate in politics. And this is why Davis was known for years as a lawyer's lawyer. He would be president of the American Bar Association for a time. This part of the story is kind of well known about the Democrats sweltering and trying to pick a leader. It's the longest ever. It goes from June 24th to July 9th. 
Alfred Smith is broken. He's reached the top vote he's going to get, and he knows he's not getting the nomination now. McAdoo reluctantly doesn't want to give up, but eventually has to, or supporters are going to bolt. Party elders, Governor Cox, the nominee the last time in 1920, flies in. John W. Davis is, is suggested again. Brian argues a little. He said, the presidency ought to only go to those who champion causes. Half a plug for himself. So negotiations continue, and it's decided that for the vice presidential nominee, they will pick Charles Bryan, William Jennings Bryan's brother. This helps Bryan to swallow his disagreements, and he endorses Davis after the nomination. And on the 103rd ballot, John W. Davis is the candidate. A lot of this won't be new. That's the story we know. But you may wonder, and I've sort of wondered, like, what happened after that? Well, if I were to start the next scene, let's say it's a little movie, and what happens from then? Of course, spoiler alert, he loses. But how John W. Davis loses is actually interesting. If I did tell the rest of the story, we'd zoom the camera to a mess on the floor. Posters with shoe prints on them, a banana peel. Oh, scratch that. They wouldn't eat bananas at this convention. A paper cups, hats, McAdoo badges, ballots flattened and dirtied by the feet of thousands of delegates who have fled the scene. The candidate's manager wakes up from a booth or chair someplace he's napping. It's Clem Shaver, West Virginia Democratic Party head. Literally... He can't believe his eyes or know if what had happened was really true. He had to ask others, did we really do it? Yeah, you did, Clum. Did we nominate John? Yep. In their home state of West Virginia, amazed people in a tiny town who had been listening to the radio and would expect to hear any other name on earth hear the name John W. Davis. There had never been a presidential candidate from West Virginia before. But now you'll see the photo. Davis straddled with the governor of the state, Al Smith, and Franklin Roosevelt, soon to be governor and soon to be president. Right now, just the 1920 vice presidential candidate, photographed on crutches. He didn't disguise it. He was healing, getting better as far as he knew, and told the press. It was a proud moment, but Mikadu, the other contender, only reluctantly even gave up his delegates and fled New York after the convention. What do you do in a campaign in the 1920s? You develop lots of merchandise. Better days with Davis. Let Davis do it. Lots of printing presses and machine shops that are set up to do it. Davis, Bryan, Fobbs. Items that are attached to the end of a leather strap used to hold a pocket watch. Popular then. License plate attachments. You attach it onto the license plate of your car and ride around. Glass paperweights that look something like John W. Davis. Cardboard noisemakers, cigar labels, posters and stickers.
If they didn't know what Davis looked like all over the Democratic counties of America, they soon would now. And a month later, August 1924, many would come out to see Davis in a parade. There were people standing ten deep along a parade route. Except Clem Shaver, his first time managing a big-time presidential candidate, tells the candidate that he should save his strength instead of appearing in the parade. Some people stood for six hours, never to see him. And then in Clarksburg, there were 50 to 70,000 people there to hear his speech. They've got fireworks planned. They've got floodlights. There's a radio station from Pittsburgh. This is the first time that a presidential candidate will make an acceptance speech that will go to America's living rooms. Small town of Clarksburg has like three houses where he's going to speak. They're surrounded with people. John W. Davis's daughter, Julia, said that the presidential campaign was to him, or what it felt like, was a process of being picked and pulled by millions of hands and fed into millions of maws. But people loved it. They cheer for him. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. But as soon as he starts speaking, there's a tremendous downpour. The rain starts bursting the bulbs on the floodlights. So when he's talking about teapot dome or the tariff all of a sudden bulbs are exploding shocking people brew has to start running over putting tarps on the bulb while somebody puts an umbrella over davis's head the fireworks that were supposed to come out after he speaks well the people up on the high ground seeing the storm come in no they're not going to be able to do the fireworks later so they make a decision to do the fireworks now so while davis is speaking the fireworks go off in the middle of it yet the audience keeps telling him to go on go on and they're drenched and they still don't leave that was davis's first speech as a presidential candidate but it's in his second speech where he took a stand he speaks in seagirt new jersey the jersey shore why does he do this this is symbolic. This is close to the home of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson has died, beloved, worshipped by Democrats at the time. Davis attacks the Republicans on the oil scandals, on the Veterans Bureau scandals of the Harding and Coolidge administration. Teapot Dome, he says in 1913, the oil lobby was scourged from Washington under Wilson's administration. In 1921, like a flock of unclean birds hastening to the feast. It gathered from the four winds and descended upon Washington City. In foreign affairs, he says that there was a time when America sat at the Council of Nations. And now, all we have is to encourage American citizens and restore Europe with sympathetic support. Nothing more. 
It's a far cry from the declaration of Theodore Roosevelt. If we are to be really a great people, we must strive in good faith to play a great part in the world. This is what David said in his speech, but more. He turns to a different topic, that of secret organizations, and reporters clasp their notebooks. If any organization, no matter what it chooses to be called, whether Ku Klux Klan or by any other name, raises the standard of racial and religious prejudice or attempts to make racial origins or religious beliefs the test of fitness for public office, it does violence to the spirit of American institutions and must be condemned by all those who believe as I do in American ideals. It's 1924. This is the candidate of the Democratic Party. He has just done what his convention was unable to do. It's a big deal. Also, which would have been huge at this time, he used the name of the KKK. Others had attacked groups, but he did just the opposite of what William Jennings Bryan for Party Unity had suggested when he said, just don't use the name of the organization. He calls them out. There's a story that uh, Klansmen approached him the night before his speech, having heard rumors that this was going to happen, and wrote a note suggesting that he not do that, and he ripped it in half. Indeed, not too far from where Davis was speaking, just a few miles, in Long Branch, New Jersey, the very organization he had so named in his speech had met on July 4th to have not a secret fire or cross burning, but to have a parade. The leader of the local clan, Arthur Bell, would give Sunday talks in a big auditorium. This was not the South, it was New Jersey. And the Klan's targets were not only African Americans, although it certainly was, but also Jews and also Catholics. The latter was most alarming to this group, to the new Northern Klan, because it was growing. In 1880, only 40,000 Italians lived in the United States. In the 20s, 5 million. There's an excellent book about Asbury Park's New Jersey's history by Daniel Wolfe, Fourth of July Asbury Park, A History of the Promised Land. But I have to say... That fine town of Asbury Park um, had a progressive mayor who shunned the Klan, did not allow them to parade, which made political life difficult for him. They were banned from Asbury, but in nearby Long Branch, New Jersey. There, the Independence Day Parade consisted of 4,000 men, women, and children, all dressed in white robes, all hooded, led by a man, also hooded, riding a white horse and carrying an enormous American flag. It was the largest Ku Klux Klan gathering ever held in the United States. 25,000 people lined Long Branch streets to watch. Men in black bowlers stood by their Model Ts. A Boy Scout held up a sign that read, We want the Holy Bible in our schools. The parade highlighted a day-long celebration that took place out at the old Monmouth Park site. With horse racing still banned, the KKK had been able to purchase 175 acres for its new imperial palace. The day-long All-American affair included a, a, a mid-morning baseball game between the Pennsylvania-New Jersey clans, a christening, an egg-and-spoon race, and a minister's race. In the evening, fireworks were shot off and an orchestra played. In addition to the many attractions, interested people could take a baseball and throw it at an image of Alfred Smith. Only a Protestant will ever be President of the United States, one of the speakers at the event said. 
That's Daniel Wolf's excellent Asbury Park, 4th of July Asbury Park. So Davis didn't speak out against some nefarious, hidden, abstract, you know, removed organization. He didn't speak out about something in the North that only existed in the South. He was taken aside and leading a charge. Unlike its 1870s Reconstruction iteration, this Klan operated everywhere. The 1920s Klan was not just in Alabama, but Oregon, California, and in Maine it harassed French-Canadian school teachers. Texas, it controlled the Dallas government, everything but the school board. In Kansas, it was dominant. In Indiana, half the members of the elected assembly were Klansmen, and its governor openly supported them and granted the organization a state charter. Pro-farmer, anti-Wall Street, anti-jazz, anti-flapper, demanding 100% Americanism, it had 4 million members in the 1920s. How did it happen? It was part of the storm in the late teens of the 20th century. Racial violence, strikes, war. It had been reorganized by Colonel William Simmons from Alabama, a Spanish-American war veteran who failed at most of what he tried. At preaching, he was a failure. He was only a colonel, not because of uh, his Spanish-American war service, because of a group that he was part of, the Woodsmen of the World, a fraternal group. He tried selling memberships and merchandise of that and didn't do too well. And then he gets into a car accident. And if anyone could go in time and fix one car accident in history, this might be the one. Because while he's recuperating, he gets the idea that uh, he's read in the past about the Ku Klux Klan over the Reconstruction days. But more than that, he designs everything, the structure of the organization, the clothes that they're going to wear, terms like the Klegals and Klaleffs and Cyclopses and dragons and things like that, and exactly how it's going to work, the combination of public and secret elements, the rituals that will make it a dangerous group. Each group would have a committee to preserve wholesomeness, but really to investigate people and decide if they were worthy targets of intimidation. He soon became flush with cash and turned his local organization over to the Southern Publicity Association, who, for exchange for most of the recruiting fees, would recruit all over the nation. He was also helped by a movie that came out, Birth of a Nation, which put onto the silver screen the image of the old clan. He hired police detectives to keep up espionage on foreigners. But this, and it's key to say, in the 20s iteration, Republicans as well as Democrats were in this organization and interplayed with their politics. The Indiana and Kansas groups, for instance, were Republicans. The Indiana's Republican Party was completely controlled. As we said, Democrats met in New York and never were able to get that vote passed. But in 1924, the Republicans met in Cleveland to nominate Calvin Coolidge. That was a, was a given. And they never even discussed the issue at all. There were people, particularly a delegate from Texas, that wanted to bring this up. He actually said to other Republicans, this is the best issue. You know, for Republicans in Texas, we go on this anti-Klan issue. No, not brought up for a vote at the convention. And this is the part that's sometimes forgotten when the story of the 1924 conventions told that the Democrats couldn't decide to, you know, how to go on their condemnation plank. The very reason there's a plank vote is because they saw the Republicans had done it before them. And some of that is written off to Coolidge, just being Coolidge, silent Cal, not talking about many issues, doesn't talk about this one. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There are other situations where Cal Coolidge defends African-American, particularly those who served in World War I, but doesn't specifically call out this group. And there's more that goes on in, his con- in the convention in Cleveland. Dr. Hiram Wesley Evans, a plump dentist by day, my knight was now the Wizard of the Klan. Yes, indeed, Simmons, who we talked about, There's no honor among thieves, right? He was forced out of his own organization after some internal fighting. The wizard was a dentist, Wesley Evans. He has control over the goblins and dragons of this invisible empire. And he comes to Cleveland with a 60-person entourage, stays in a private home not far from where the convention's being held. He doesn't speak out. He doesn't go to the convention. He sits there with an operation, making sure that there is no plank condemning the Klan. They even do try to get the vice presidential nominee to be a senator from Indiana, Jim Watson, and they don't succeed. Watson was like, are you trying to kill my political career? And perhaps he was. He wasn't a member of the Klan, although he didn't condemn the Klan either. With Evans in Cleveland, no plank was proposed. Evans insists that he wasn't political. No party can ever own or disown us. The strength politically of this organization makes it all the more stirring that John Davis has these words in his Seagirt speech, if any organization, no matter what it chooses to be called, whether Ku Klux Klan or by any other name, raises the standard of racial or religious prejudice, it does violent to the spirit of American institutions. Now, he'll make that same speech in many other places across the country, and he does more. This is not just a strike at the organization, but also a bit of a hook that he would like to plunge into his opponent, hopefully. I repeat that these matters must not be permitted to divert the attention of the public from the vital questions now before them. I venture, therefore, to express the hope that the nominee of the Republican Party will see fit, by some explicit declaration, to join in entirely removing this topic from the field of political debate. Davis is a clever lawyer. Here's what he's done. He's just tagged Coolidge. Now it's all being done with bunting, bandstands, and front porches, and straw hats, the spoken word on the stump, and then the printed word on the gray page. But to follow what happened here, he just tagged him. He's spoken out, and now reporters are going to go over to Coolidge and try to get comment. He won't. Davis is going to say several times, I spent the whole election of 1924 trying to get opponent, my opponent to debate the issues. Not everybody is happy with this within the Democratic Party. Here's what a senator from South Carolina says. Uh, they sent word to Mr. Calvin Coolidge, so it is said, to join Mr. Davis in denouncing the Klan. 
A bunch of priests called on him and told him Davis was going to denounce the Klan, it is said. He better denounce it too. Coolidge said that he did not make a chatterbox out of his mouth about things that were not in the platform. And he got elected. John W. Davis denounced it after this group of Catholics from Tammany, New York City, Al Smith's crowd, insisted that he denounce it. And he lost four states by this action. And it's absolutely true. Davis loses a few states that even that Democrats would normally get, including his home state of West Virginia. In fact, his home county, Harrison, voted for Coolidge. That news gave him a pain which he could not conceal, so his daughter wrote. There was another issue, too, that came back to haunt him. As Solicitor General, Davis, as part of the Wilson administration, had used his legal skills to overturn an Oklahoma law that prevented people from voting if their grandfather had not voted. This was just a simple, clever, semantic way to get African Americans not to vote, since they were enslaved and could not vote. This issue was brought up, that he had fought for this, and Davis's 28.8% remains the smallest percentage of popular vote ever. What I wanted, Davis said, was for Coolidge to say something. I didn't care what it was, just so I had somebody to debate with. He never opened his mouth. John W. Davis would continue his legal practice. He'd be opponent of the New Deal. He would actually argue before the Supreme Court in the case of Youngstown Steel. That would actually limit the executive power of uh, the presidency. One case that his law partners and his daughter urged him not to take was the case of Brown v. Born of Ed. And so if John W. Davis is known for anything... Uh, else but his presidential run. It's that he was the lawyer opposing Thurgood Marshall for the case of Brown v. Board of Ed, which was a case that he argued but lost on behalf of South Carolina. There's no reason to defend him on this issue. His views in terms of what he felt about the Brown decision, what he was arguing, were not just representing a client. They were mostly his own. His daughter explains that he did see a time when integration of schools would happen, but wanted to start with colleges first and move downward. This type of incrementalism is not something that stands up well to modern times. I think we see that Brown decision as something highly necessary to, to make action happen. And so you have in the story of John W. Davis, uh, it's not a tale of a hero. But it is an undertold tale of somebody who, when they had a platform, used it for the right reason. And although there's a long history of, um, especially in its reconstruction time, of Democrats and the Klan, and there are a lot of Democrats in the past who were Klan members, being the prominent party in the South, you have two nominees in a row, Davis and then who will follow him will be Al Smith. This time he'll get that nomination supported by some Southerners this time, including uh, the whole delegation of Texas um, supporting a Catholic candidate. He'll get the votes of the South. You have uh, d during this time, you know, two Democratic candidates in a row who will specifically call out the Klan. And for that, it's worth thinking a little bit about this also ran. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, 
U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.